Well, again, good morning and welcome to Grumlaw. We really are so happy that all of you would decide to make Grumlaw a part of your week. We certainly do not take that for granted, particularly if this is your first time with us, because listen, we totally get that even as an adult, it can feel a little bit intimidating. It can even be downright scary stepping into a new place. And so again, we're so glad that you decided to show up here today and again, give us about an hour uh, of your week. We'll also say this, uh, it's our hope and our prayers that this just won't be a a one-time experience for you, uh, that you'll come back at least a handful of times, three, four times, because we think it takes at least a couple of times for you to really get an accurate feel of what we're all about here. But again, nonetheless, really, really excited that all of you are here today. Uh, I'm pretty pumped about the series uh, that we're going to be starting here today, and it's pretty well going to take us right to the end of the summer, uh, called How to Neighbor. Uh, And isn't the the title of this series pretty telling on how society has pretty dramatically shifted over these last 20, these last 30, these last 40 years. I'm pretty convinced that if a church did a series called How to Neighbor about 30 years ago, people would have kind of thought that the pastor had lost his mind. But as every single one of us have experienced, as our world grows more and more connected through technology and specifically through social media, through avenues like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and and Twitter, um, as we grow more connected through social media, we're actually growing farther apart and we're quickly quickly becoming the most isolated generation actually in the history of the world. Uh, Countless studies and and research now have conclusively shown that the more time that you actually spend on social media, the the lonelier and the less engaged that you actually feel to the world around you. Smartphone use can actually form neurological connections that are eerily similar to the connections that we see in people that have an opioid addiction. That this connection to to the digital world has undeniably caused a disconnect to the physical world around us. But I'm certainly of the belief, and and perhaps I'm being too optimistic, but but I'm certainly of the belief that this has not been intentional. I I don't think that any of you are are trying to intentionally become disconnected, but, but it is happening. So we ought to be intentional about neighboring. We ought to be intentional about connecting to the people around us. And just in case you're wondering, uh, Jesus would call the us around us our neighbors. And hence this series, and hence really the importance of this series for every single one of us, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you call yourself a Christian, whether you don't call yourself a Christian. This is for everyone because we have all been affected, both positively as well as negatively, by technology in this ever-changing social landscape. And so over these next four weeks, we're going to address what I think most of us would consider four of the most pressing topics, four of the most pressing subjects in our world right now. And, and how do we neighbor those people that, that do need us but are probably different from us? Now, one of the things uh, that I really, really get excited about as it relates to this subject of neighboring is that Jesus himself, we're talking God in a bod, he very directly speaks uh, about this whole subject of neighboring. It's not one of these things where like, maybe he's like kind of alluding to it. I mean, I guess, it, yeah, that could be it. And we kind of try to ram it into that corner. No, he just so specifically addresses this subject of neighboring. Now, for those of you that, that are new to this whole Christianity thing, or, or perhaps you stepped away from church for a pretty significant period of your life, and, and now you're back and you're beginning to explore, you're beginning to demand adult answers to your adult questions. Responses like, well, because the Bible says so, are no longer sufficient for you. And by the way, those answers should not be sufficient for you. Well, one of the things that you'll hear us say an awful lot around here is that we take the words of Jesus very, very seriously. But we don't take those words seriously because they happen to be recorded in this book that we call the Bible. It's actually way better than that. We, we, we take the words of Jesus very, very seriously because this is a guy that predicted his own death 
and then he predicted his own resurrection, and we have a whole mess of historical evidence to actually suggest that he pulled that off. And I can't speak for you, but for me, I'm a relatively simple man. If a guy predicts his own death, and he predicts his own resurrection, and then he actually seems to pull that off, I am going to take his words pretty seriously. Certainly more serious than the friend that happens to be popping off on Facebook. So, Jesus has something very, very directly to say on the subject of neighboring. And in fact, this conversation all starts out uh, with a religious man, a Jewish man, a person that back at this point in history would have held an enormous amount of influence, asking Jesus a very, very direct question. He says, of all the commandments, which Jesus is the most important? Now, it's important to note the context that this guy was asking this from. He was asking it from a Jewish standpoint. And within the Jewish Bible, sometimes referred to as the Old Testament law, sometimes referred to as the law of Moses, there were these 613 laws that every good Jewish man and every good Jewish woman were expected to not only memorize, but actually abide by those 613 laws. And he's asking Jesus, okay, of those 613 laws, which one of those laws is the most important? Now, Jesus answers the question, in fact, in a much broader sense that actually relates to me and to you. He answers it as if the question that was posed to him is, okay, what is this hard and fast rule that that every person would be wise to live by? And not surprisingly at all, Jesus answers by saying, the most important commandment is this. And then he goes on actually to quote from a book within the Old Testament. For those of you who don't know, that's kind of the first half of this book that we call the Bible, a book called Deuteronomy. And Jesus chooses to quote from this book because it's kind of his subtle way of communicating to his audience, this largely Jewish audience, that, hey, I'm very, very familiar with these 613 laws. And so he chooses to quote, again, from the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible. Again, some of you might not know that. The Jewish Bible and the Old Testament are one and the same. If you were to leave right now and step into a Jewish synagogue and pick up their Bible, you would find verbatim the exact same thing that we have in our Old Testament. Again, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy in order to gain credibility and say, hey, listen, I am very familiar with these laws. This is the most important one. He says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And everybody would have been nodding their heads. And you must love the Lord your God, and chances are you've probably heard some version of this at some point in your life. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And as Jesus was saying these words, again, this is what everybody expected to hear. That this was the response that everybody expected to hear. In fact, even if you are new to this whole Christianity thing, and I was to put you on the spot and ask you, hey, what do you think is the most important commandment in this whole thing that we call Christianity? My guess is that you would probably guess something along these lines. This idea to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But then... Much to everybody's surprise, Jesus continues. He says, the second, to which the guy asking the question would have thought, I didn't ask you for a second. And Jesus said, I don't care. I have something more to tell you. The second is equally important. And as Jesus spoke, whenever he spoke, these crowds would gather. People would come to listen in to to what Jesus had to say. And as he said these words is equally important, everybody's ears perked up. Because Jesus right now, with what he says next, he's about to equate something with loving God. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Do you see what he did there? He he combined these two ideas. He didn't say there's no other commandment greater than loving the Lord your God. He said there's no other commandment greater than these. 
There's this idea that he merged things here and that loving God and loving people are essentially one and the same. The second is equally important, as in as important as loving God. You guys, these were strong words. Very, very strong words. These are the words back at this point in society that was so religious that they got you in trouble. These are particularly strong words coming from the guy that was literally claiming to be the son of God. Now at this point uh, in the story, we're gonna kind of switch accounts and we're gonna jump into Luke's version uh, of this story. The first four books of the second half of the Bible called the New Testament are these books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we often refer to those books as the Gospels, which is just a fancy way of saying good news. Gospel and good news are synonymous terms. Uh, And we call those four books the Gospels or the good news because they record for us Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And they all tell the story of Jesus as told from four different individuals' perspectives. And because they're all telling the same story of Jesus, oftentimes what you see is there's some overlap in the stories, that Matthew will tell the same story that Luke tells, that John will tell the same story that Mark tells. And this particular event that we're taking a look at this morning is actually told for us in Matthew and Mark as well as Luke. And we're gonna jump into Luke's account now, and it's not because we are anti-Mark, but it's because Luke gives us a detail here that for whatever reason, Matthew and Mark decide to leave out. Now, we're going to go on a bit of a rabbit trail here, but I think it's a worthwhile rabbit trail. Some of you that are maybe a little bit inquisitive might be asking yourself, okay, why does Luke give us this detail? And maybe more importantly, why do Matthew and Mark decide to leave it out? I'm glad that you asked. First off, Luke was a doctor. Luke did not believe things for the sake of belief. He didn't believe things because they just sounded nice. He didn't believe things because all the people around him seemed to believe those things. He didn't believe things just because they were written down in a book that was supposedly really, really, really important. Luke needed hard facts. And he was hearing all about this guy that predicted his death and predicted his resurrection and then actually pulled it off and he goes, okay, I have to investigate this for myself. And so that's exactly what he did. He dedicated the latter half of his life into, into investigating the, the events and, and all these things that he was hearing about Jesus. And he does a deep dive, dive into the life of Jesus and he goes and he, and he speaks to people that, that actually spent time with Jesus in the flesh and he speaks with all these eyewitnesses and he comes to the conclusion ultimately that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Luke needed those hard facts, and Luke, because of his inquisitive nature, he loved details, and he often includes details in his account that the other gospels happen to leave out. And one of the primary reasons that he would do this is because he knew his audience well. Luke, unlike the other gospel accounts, was writing to a Gentile audience. Now, a Gentile simply means non-Jew. And my guess is that, therefore, every single person in this room probably falls into that category, that you are a Gentile. Isn't that exciting? You can go home today and be like, honey, you're not going to believe it. I am a Gentile. I learned something new about myself. You are welcome. Because he is writing to this audience that is primarily Gentile, this is an audience that had never laid eyes on the Jewish Bible. This is an audience that Luke could not assume had any sort of baseline level of knowledge as it related to this God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, as it related to Judaism, as it related to what we now refer to as Christianity. He includes countless details that it would have been completely irrelevant to a Jewish audience, that a Jewish audience, if they would read his account, would have thought to themselves, Luke, why did you include this stuff? Everybody already knows this stuff. And he would have said, not so fast. All you Jewish people know about this stuff, but the Gentiles, they do not. Very pertinent details to a Gentile audience and specifically, like himself, a skeptical Gentile audience. He was thinking through the lens of a skeptic. 
Because when he heard about it, he didn't buy the whole God sent his one and his only son down to earth to die for the sins of the entire world, but that three days later he rose from the grave. And undoubtedly, one of the tensions that Luke was constantly managing was the discord, was the prejudice, the dare I say it, the racism that existed between the Gentile and the Jew. And so he gives us this, this incredible detail that, that imperfectly encapsulates really what this series is all about. This religious man, surely baffled by the idea that Jesus has just equated loving God with, with loving people, he asks the question that is begging to be asked. He says, and who? Okay, Jesus. And who is my neighbor? And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that he decides to give us this detail. Because again, this is the jumping off point for the entire series, and he so brilliantly addresses how to neighbor with the words that come out of his mouth next. But he doesn't jump into this how-to on neighboring filled with bullet points and practical tips. He instead chooses to tell us a story. And for those of you that grew up going to church, I guarantee you, you've heard this story before. For, for those of you that did not grow up going to church, I guarantee that you heard some version of this story at some point in your life and you probably had no idea that its roots laid back to the mouth of Jesus. And you've probably been told what the lesson is and what you're supposed to take away from it and, and what your Sunday school teacher might have told you and what the small group leader might have communicated to you. It might not be wrong, but, but maybe, just maybe, it might not be exactly what Jesus was getting at. I think what Jesus was actually prying at, something far, far more sensitive, far more touchy, and unfortunately far more prevalent than any of us would probably like to admit. This is an issue that the church, and when I say church, I'm not just talking about Grumlaw Church, I'm talking about the Big C Church, the community of Jesus followers as a whole, has to be on the front line speaking about, and we have to stop ignoring it. We have to, in fact, be a part of the solution, and, and the subject that I'm alluding to is racism. Now, now, right here on, on the front end, I want to acknowledge something that perhaps some of you are already going here mentally. I am indeed a middle-aged white male who has never been, at least to my knowledge, the recipient of bigotry, prejudice, or any form of mistreatment based on the color of my skin or my race. The, the last thing that I want to do up today is, is stand up here and paint this false, false pretense that I know what it's like to be a victim of, of racial discrimination. I'll also readily admit that, that I have a very, very limited, very limited perspective on this subject. I grew up and, and have for the majority of my life lived in areas where most of the people around me look exactly like me. I mean, shoot, look around right now. It's basically a whole mess of white people with just a little bit of diversity sprinkled in. I, I'm gonna do my best this morning to just communicate what, what I know God has laid on my heart today. I think as the leader of this church, it's really, really important that this comes from my mouth, and more importantly, I think as a Jesus follower. And by the way, if, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, you also fall into this category. We need to lead the way in, in showing love to everyone. All the people that we come in contact with on a day-to-day -day basis, the, G, the people that Jesus would say are neighbors. Now, before we go any farther, uh, I'd like to pray for all of us and pray for myself. It's just an ever so slightly touchy subject. You say the word racism and people are like, yeah, I'm gonna sit real quiet now. So let me pray for us. Father, I just say thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, what you're doing in the hearts of so many different people. I thank you that uh, this is an environment where we can tackle issues that uh, maybe are a little bit sensitive or a lot of bit sensitive. And, and I just ask God that uh, all of us would just be open to whatever it is that you may want to say to us today. 
uh, that we wouldn't be quick to look to the person to our left or our right and say, that's a them issue, but maybe we would really kind of explore and see, okay, is there actually a little bit of this going on in me? And so speak God whole and you can. Uh, again, just ask for soft hearts that we'd be open again to whatever it is that, that you want to say to us today. In your name we pray, amen. So back to this question that was posed to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Now, when you think about it, this is actually kind of an odd follow-up question to Jesus' words because remember, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. The, the, the more pressing question, the, the more obvious glaring question in this scenario would have actually been, what do you mean by love? Hey, hey Jesus, wh- why don't you communicate to us exactly what you mean by this whole love thing? But for whatever reason, this guy decides to bypass that question altogether and he asks, who is my neighbor? And what I think this guy was actually asking Jesus, and before you're too judgmental towards him, be honest with yourself, you don't have to admit it to anybody else, you too have probably asked some version of this question at some point in your life. What he was actually asking was, you don't mean everyone, right? I mean, you're not actually talking about like all people, right? Let's be honest, this guy had somebody in mind. That coworker immediately jumped to his mind. His boss's face was staring right at him. That family member's voice came screeching across his mind. That dude that's always looking super expressed as you pull off the expressway and is holding the cardboard sign, asking for some food and asking for some money, and you're playing that whole dance of like, oh my gosh, trying to avoid eye contact with him. Yeah, he had somebody very, very specific in mind. And just like if, if I was to tell all of you that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself and, and you really thought about that and you let the practical implications of that sink in, there would be inevitably some people that would be jumping to your mind and you'd be thinking, oh, you don't mean her, right? I mean, you, you don't mean him, right? You, you, you don't actually mean everybody, right? And for some of us, there's inevitably... Uh, an entire group of people that come to your mind. People with those piercings, people with those tattoos, people that are a part of that religion, people that are from that area, that live in that neighborhood, that hold those beliefs, that have that accent, that eat that type of food, that have that color skin. And as Jesus mentioned, he, he doesn't tell us who to neighbor. Jesus tells us how to neighbor. See, Jesus was already running with the presupposition that every single one of you are smart enough to know that he meant everyone. He's saying, come on, come on, don't don't play stupid with me. Don't, Don't think so highly of yourself that you somehow think that you are more valuable than the person that sits to your left or the person that sits to your right. Don't be so naive to think that you are really something special. All people All people have been created in God's image, not just the people that look like you. And so he skips the obvious and he jumps right into the how and he tells us a story. He says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. It's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. This guy's traveling along, all of a sudden he gets jumped, he gets mugged, he gets the living tar beaten out of him, and he is left for dead on the side of the road. And unless somebody intervenes, unless somebody happens to come passing by and help this guy out, he is going to be in a lot of trouble. He's probably not going to make it. By chance, look at his lucky day, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. 
A temple assistant in other translations that says a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, to give you a little bit of context as to why this priest, I mean, it's so easy, I know, remember, like, reading this in Sunday school and, like, in the shock and horror that, oh my gosh, a priest, a godly person would do this. But back at this point in history, the priest, there was this whole thing called ceremonially clean and ceremonially unclean. And if you were deemed to be ceremonially unclean, you couldn't perform your duties as a priest. And one of the things that might make you ceremonially unclean was, was touching a dead body or touching blood. And, and surely that's what's going through this guy's mind as he's weighing his options here. He's like, oh my gosh, I mean, the guy doesn't even really look like he's going to make it anyway. And if I decide to touch this guy, okay, I'm not going to be able to do my job for the day. It would cost him just too much. Then the temple assistant, the Levite, comes strolling by. He's weighing probably very similar thoughts going through his head, and he comes to the exact same conclusion. But then Jesus continues, and, and he says something that would have been jaw-droppingly shocking. He says, then a despised Samaritan came along. And I'm telling you, back at this point in history, when Jesus said these words, there would have been an audible gasp. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. These are the details of the story that for whatever reason Sunday school teachers tend to leave out. These are the details that Luke thought were very, very important to include because he knew the audience well that would have been reading his gospel account. He knew that this would resonate with the Gentile audience in a big, big way because they were constantly, constantly discriminated against as Gentiles living among Jews. That this was an extraordinarily intentional statement that Jesus was making. See, at this point in history, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They despised each other. This was, this was hatred that was 700 years in the making because 700 years earlier, when the Jews were exiled, some of the Jews decided to stay behind and in turn they intermarried with people of different races, with people of different religions. Races that worshipped other gods, races from the Jewish perspective that worshipped pagan gods and in turn they produced pagan children. And these people came to be known as, as the Samaritans. And since the Samaritans were hated so deeply by the Jews, they did what comes so naturally to every single one of us. They hated the Jews right on back. And this had gone on at, at this point in history for 700 years. And I'm telling you, you guys, that this hatred ran deep. And, and so the idea, as it says here, that a Samaritan would feel compassion for a Jewish man, I mean, it was, it was almost unthinkable. It's the type of hatred that we see so much in our world right now. We're literally like mass shootings have become commonplace. When, when somebody would feel such hatred for an entire group of people that that individual would take deadly force against that group of people. This is the kind of hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And if Jesus would have stopped right here, that would have been enough. He'd already shocked the crowd, but he takes it a step further, as he often does. Going over to him... The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, another gasp, and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Again, a Samaritan taking care of a Jew. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I, the Samaritan paying for the Jew, I will pay you the next time that I am here. And again, as Jesus is speaking to this primarily Jewish audience, there is gasping, there is snickering, 
There is laughing, there is eye rolling. They're looking at each other going, are you kidding me? Did he actually just go there? It was an absurd thought. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was touching on this story uh, and being wise enough to recognize that this ran far deeper than just be nice to the people around you, that, that Jesus was indeed pressing at a far more sensitive subject, he had this to say. He said, the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? And this church right here is, is what is in so many ways at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the message of Jesus. Love God, love God by loving people. Love God by showing love to the people around you. As we talked about in, in the series that we did at the beginning of the year called Brand New, and if you weren't here for that series Brand New, I'd really, really recommend that you go back and you listen to that. But the bottom line for, for that entire series was your love for God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for other people. And not just the people that look the same, that act the same, that believe the same things you do. But honestly, and more importantly, the people that are different from you. And wouldn't you know it, the, the more that you practice this, the, the more that you do this, even though it might not feel natural, even though it might not feel comfortable, even though it might not feel normal, the more you live this out, the more natural it will become. Because racism, wouldn't you know it, and I, I think all of you are smart enough to know this, is indeed something learned. I love this quote by Dennis Leary. He's a famous actor. He says, racism isn't born, folks. It's taught. I have a two-year-old son. You know what he hates? Naps. You can laugh, I know, it's like, okay, cut a cord here. You learn racism by reinforcing stereotypes, by separating yourself from people that are different from you, by surrounding yourself with people who only think the exact same way that you do. You unlearn racism, consequently, by loving the people around you, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't necessarily feel right to you. I've shared about this so many times before. If you wait for your attitude and your thoughts and your emotions to change before you take your before you change your actions, you are going to be waiting right up until the moment that you die. Change your actions and watch how your spirit, watch how your attitude follows suit. Your actions will always precede your attitude will always proceed on what you're actually feeling in here. Jesus wraps up this, this conversation by asking a very direct question to the man that had originally posed the question to him. He says, now which of these three, come on, which of these three? The priest, the temple assistant, or the, I know you don't even want to say it, the Samaritan, would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, and I'm telling you, this isn't an accident. It, it's not an accident that it says the one because he couldn't even get Samaritan off of his lips. He, he, he wouldn't even dare utter it. He says the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, bingo. Now go and do the same. Go and do. Love God by loving people, by loving the people around you. 
and not just the people that look like you, that think like you, that act like you, that dress like you. Jesus has called us to be a neighbor to everyone, even that group of people, even that person. And so as we wrap up here, here this morning, let's ask the question, how do we neighbor those different from us? And number one, I, I think we have to recognize any prejudices. A prejudice or prejudging, the exact same words, is a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or, or actual experience. So often you hear people say things like, I'm not racist, but... As soon as you start saying, I'm not racist, but you are announcing to the world that there is racism inside of you, that there's prejudice inside of you. I'm not racist. I have a black friend. I have a Latino friend. I have a Mexican friend. I have an Arab friend. I have an Indian friend. Again, clearly declaring to the world that there is prejudice inside of you. Call it out. Be honest with yourself and the people around you. The evil one wants nothing more than for us to leave these things in the dark, for us to continue to rationalize it, to continue to excuse it, because it isn't until it is brought into the light that we'll come to terms with it and, and we'll actually begin to deal with these things. About six years ago, uh, I became really, really involved in a ministry down in Highland Park, uh, Michigan. If you've ever been to Highland Park, it's, it's one of the roughest neighborhoods, literally, in in our nation and uh, there's a ministry down there called 323 for the King. They've actually recently transitioned. They have a name change called Shiloh Detroit. For those of you that don't know, uh, this church, you are a part of supporting this ministry uh, on an ongoing basis. And they really just, just seek to, to meet the needs uh, and show love to, to children that are growing up in just brutal environments and environments that, that none of us would wish for our kids, underprivileged kids, feeding them a meal. But more than that, they just place such a high emphasis on the relationship. They don't want you to just come in and volunteer for a couple hours a week. They're like, we really want you. If you want to volunteer here, it's a high ask, but we want you to get really involved in these kids' lives. Like, like spend hours at a time with them. Bring them into your home. Invite them to be a part of your family. And uh, as I was preparing this message this week, and I was thinking about this, there are three boys in particular that my wife and I have gotten really close with, Arthur, Tejian, and Kian. And I am so embarrassed to tell you guys, I was in my mid-20s at this point, and I didn't have a single friend that didn't look exactly like me. I said I did. I had black people's phone numbers. I had, I had acquaintances that, that, yeah, I would tell people, I, I, I'm not racist, I have a black friend. I had that token black friend so I could declare that to the world, but I didn't actually have a single friend that looked different from me. And I started investing in these kids' lives and little did they know investing in huge ways in me. And there were so many nights after spending hours with them, after spending the weekend with them, after inviting them into our home for days at a time where I drove away and just sobbed because of the things that God was pointing out to me. My perspective finally began to change, which leads me to point number two, seek to understand others. Rather than continuing to reinforce your biases, seek to get to know people who are different from you. Actually talk to people that have different beliefs, that have different backgrounds, that have different opinions. We are so guilty of this as human beings, aren't we? 
we just continue to surround ourselves with voices and news articles and Facebook posts that just continue to reinforce the things that we already seem to hold true in our own minds. The idea that we would listen to anything from that side or from those people, it's, it's absurd and we're so quick to dismiss it. Rob, who you saw up here uh, a little bit ago, um, he has such an awareness for this, for, for racism and, and diversity, and I'm so thankful for your friendship, man, and how you have continued to challenge us to, to think bigger as a church and to think outside the box as, as a church. And recently, uh, he handed me a book called America's Original Sin, and I wasn't like super excited to read it, but man, there have been so many times as I'm ripping through this book and it's all about racism here in America and how it's still such a prevalent thing and where I've thought, it's not that bad. This guy's exaggerating. There's no way it's just that bad. And I just keep challenging myself to ask the question over and over and over again, God, what do you want to teach me through this? What do you want to teach me through this? What do you want to teach me through this? And the last thing I wrote down was, uh, love those that are different from you. It's not enough to just educate yourself and teach yourself about other races. It's important that we actually get out and, and we spend time with, again, people who are different from us. When I started to get to know those three boys, Art, Tay, and Key, like I, I thought that, that I was almost like this, this, this white god that was coming into their world. I really did. I thought, oh my goodness, these boys are so stinking lucky to have me a part of their life. Look at all the good I'm doing for them. And, and I think today that they have given me so much more than I have given them or will ever give them. I'm so thankful for my friendship with those guys. Love God by loving people, all people. You all, when we get to heaven, it's not just gonna be a bunch of white people. Heaven is going to be diverse. It's not just gonna be a bunch of people that look like you. Hopefully this isn't news to you, but God created all people in his image, not just you people. God loves Asian Americans and African Americans and Latin Americans and Native Americans. God even loves Americans who have cats. God loves Cubans and Hondurans and Nigerians and Jamaicans and Koreans and Malaysians and Canadians and Iranians and Croatians and Russians and on and on and on and on. Remember when Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor? He didn't say who, he said how. He was running under the assumption that all of you are smart enough to know that he meant everyone. Love God by loving people, all people. We can make this stuff so complicated, but yet it is so extraordinarily simple. Love God by loving people.